Hey, this is Kate. Welcome to Two Pastors. We'll take a walk again someday after they survive a pandemic and make a podcast. This is Yolando. And as always, we're talking about what is astonishing us, what we're thinking about, and what we're preaching. So what is astonishing you, my friend? Well, um, right before we hit the record button, you and I were just having a conversation about uh, being astonished in this season and the need to uh, be astonished by something positive because there are so many things to be discouraged about in the season. And that was a real um, um, opening um, for the spirit to move in my heart and mind. Uh, right when you said that, I was like, yeah, absolutely. And immediately what came to me is that I am astonished by the work of God in the life of the Dorita Church family, um, God is definitely at work. I'm thinking of that scripture that says, all things work together for good for those who love the Lord, for, for those who are called according to his purpose. And even though this is a challenging and hard season, even though I do not believe that God has um, sent this pandemic to punish and destroy, I do believe that in the midst of it, God is working good. God is being incredibly gracious to us as a church. And one of the ways that God is being so good to us is that in the midst of this season, uh, the elders of our congregation have really gone to work. I'm so impressed by them and so grateful for them. Their sacrifice of time, their uh, I've got one, we have one elder who has really uh, taken on um, uh, leadership in the area of outreach. We're now uh, reaching out to a nursing home that is a block away from our church where, you know, our, our hearts are so concerned for the residents of that nursing home who, you know, they're quarantined basically in really small rooms. For us, you know, we can go outside or take a walk. Um, it, it's challenging for us, but it's so challenging for people in nursing homes. And so uh, this one elder has really led the charge in reaching out to this nursing home near us. Also, we've got folks thinking about how we might reset worship, uh, specifically around engaging um, people who come to worship. That is, we're we're seeking to move from a culture of of folks being spectators, uh, needing prompting from the platform to a culture of we walk in as worshipers. We walk in ready to pour out and lift up uh, worship. And I'm really grateful for the work of the spirit that is clearly <laughs> beyond me, clearly um also in spite of me, that's happening in the life of our congregation. So that's that's what's astonishing me. Yeah, I, I am um, with you that um, I think about that verse about Jesus saying, Jesus or Paul, Jesus saying, if you love those who love you, what good is that? Even the tax collectors do that. That's Jesus. And I think similarly to 
to be able to um, stand in awe and praise of God and an astonishment of God's goodness, to be able to do that in times of triumph and, um, you know, ease, that's no great feat. And I think for people who um, stand in the truth that God is good and God is powerful, then the time when it really matters to seek to be astonished and to find things to be in awe over it's times like this. I mean, anybody can praise God when they've won, won the lottery. Um, in fact, a couple Sundays ago, um, one of the um, leaders in our congregation came and was leading the prayers of the people. And he, um, um, his name is Bob, and he did a sort of a responsive um, prayer through one of the Psalms and just sort of um, prefaced it in saying that he had noticed in himself that his praise for God had dried up. And so he really wanted to sort of read the Psalm um, and leave spaces in between some of the verses that would prompt us that when we lifted our prayers to God, that we would praise God and not in a Pollyanna-ish, let's close our eyes and pretend that nothing is really wrong, but to say in the face of great suffering and injustice, we praise God for who God is and that God is a promise keeper. And that while it is so important for us to be a people who um, face truth um, and live in reality, what is horrible is also not the only true thing. And so to be able to both tell the truth about tragedy and injustice and crisis and suffering is imperative, but it is also imperative that we tell the truth that whatever, as the saying goes, the whole world is not woe. And so to cultivate astonishment at the goodness of God takes more intentionality. But if God is who we say God is, then there is something to be astonished of in this moment. And I, you know, one of the proof of that for me is just to think, you know, I don't look back at myself in early March and feel like I was especially happy. <laughs> and yet I look at so many things in my life that I completely took for granted. And now I can look back at them and see how astonishingly good it was to be able to gather with my friends in worship in the sanctuary and to be able to walk around the streets and see unmasked people that was so good not to have looting on the streets of an and I mean anyway so we have now is especially the time to cultivate awe and practice astonishment and I think um I'm finding it in two places because I'm struggling not gonna lie um I was talking to a member of our community Libba who is quarantining at home um and she is has recently been widowed lost her husband of just a few months before their 50th wedding anniversary and um, had been caring for him. And so had, had had to give up a lot of things that made her life sweet and good to be there, to care for him 24 seven. And then he died, which was a great tragedy. And the silver lining of that was that she was freed from the burden of caretaking and would be able to resume just some of the good and sweet things in her life. And then immediately after that, here comes this COVID-19 and she is now just as chained to her home, but not with him. And so, I mean, that's just brutal. And I, 
um, it's just really hard. And I was talking to her a little bit and, and she mentioned that a little boy in our congregation, Grayson had sent her a letter and that when she got it and she's not left her home since I think March 8th. And, um, she just said, you know, getting that letter from him, you know, changed her day. Like just, just, it was so powerful. Um, and brought her such joy and hope and strength. And I think just to be astonished that there are things that don't even cost us much that can have so much power in the kingdom of God. And I think, um, you know, we, we have a quote hanging in our kitchen, I think from John Wesley about like to do all the good you can and all the places you can to all the people you can. And I do think as much as we need to really be suspicious of any ideology wherein we claim goodness for ourselves to have a real zeal um, to do good um, in humble ways, um, just not seeking glory, but just really because we want to be good for others in the way that God is good for us. I mean, that's just really, really powerful, really astonishing that you think for a child to write um, an, another, an older person a letter, I mean, that's nice. But I mean, does it really matter? And then to hear the words of someone talk about how much that matters, it's astonishing. Um, and it makes, it, it encourages me a lot to want to lift that up and celebrate it and um, encourage people to know in a time when everything feels so much beyond our control, just how much power we do have. So Yeah, before we started this podcast, when we were just taking a walk back in the day, uh, one of the things that we often said was that in the work of church transformation, especially in small congregations, it's important for us as pastors to look for the place of gratitude, to look for the place of astonishment where God was working and uh, to let that fuel us instead of falling back into uh, complaining, uh, grumbling about what the church isn't doing or what the church hasn't become, but just to, just to stay in a place of gratitude for, you know, what was happening. And so I just think that is such an important discipline, not only for us as pastors, but for believers in general. Yeah, because I mean, there are times in our lives where, I mean, as Ecclesiastes say, says, there are seasons for grief, right? And there are just seasons where to be sad is the only sane thing to be. <laughs> um, but I also think we need to ask ourselves hard questions if, you know, if that is where we're stuck or, and, and if it's where we're stuck, then to know that um, there are, there are paths to healing that the Lord has set out for us that we need to be brave enough to walk on. And then, or, or in, in many cases, if it's where we're choosing to be, because it just is kind of safer to be cynical and bitter and complaining than to, you know, take the risk of stepping out into new ways of being and thinking. So um, I, I think that's really um, helpful because some people I know who are having a hard time experiencing joy right now, I look at their life from the outside and I think, I mean, yes. And I pray with you for a new season, 
But some people who are having a hard time, you look at their life from the outside and you never say anything because it just wouldn't be helpful. But you look at their life from the outside and you think, you know, um, you don't have to, you don't have to be where you are. And so, yes. And so cultivating astonishment and practicing gratitude isn't an Oprah thing. It's a life-giving thing. Um, Yes. And as believers in general, um, and specifically in the black church tradition, it doesn't have to be an either, or, you know, either joy or sadness. You can uh, grieve the brokenness of the world and at the same time rejoice in what God is doing. It does not have to be an either, or. And in fact, I mean, as people who, if, if you are a person, as I hope to be, aspire to be a person who wants to be a part of the work of justice and new creation and transformation, then I think it's really impossible to be part of that work in a meaningful spirit-filled way, unless you carry joy with your righteous anger. I mean, if you, if you don't have sort of a testimony to otherwise in your heart, then you won't be able to do the things that just don't make sense in the eyes of the world. Because if you have nothing but anger and despair and hatred in your heart, then you just retrench because there's no, there's no point. Um, So yes, I I think, um, I I guess the last thing I want to say before I move on is I think one reason that um, it is, I think we undervalue practicing awe and astonishment and gratitude because those are seen as like as kind of feminine things to do um Mm. i think that you know it's it's women who are given gratitude journals and often you know um and also i think you're right um it's the witness of people of color who you know find meaning and strength and hope and praising the goodness of god and it's kind of the dominant consumer capitalist toxic masculinity culture that just wants to sort of name brokenness and fix it or or throw a fit and so to be able to um cat um really recognize that if there is something in us that is um impatient or suspicious of the spiritual strength that comes from the um walking in gratitude and awe before God, that that might have to do more with the dominant cultural lies we've bought into than where, where real ancient power and wisdom and transformation lie. So anyway, I don't know. I mean, can you think of, I cannot think of a single male author, theologian, preacher, who regularly preaches about gratitude or cultivating joy. I mean, those are all women's voices in my experience. Yeah. I just think that's such a good point uh, because I think as men, we are socialized to fix it. And um, in many ways, masculinity is determined by your ability to fix it. And you can't fix it, then destroy it. Mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Anyway. All right. Well, <laughs> we should now step into the depths of what we've been thinking about this week. Um, this week has 
just been filled with further Mm. apocalyptic Mm. revelations of how Mm. broken and toxic and death dealing our culture and the systems that we've built are and um I mean I, I don't know I'm thinking lots of things I feel like you should get the first crack at speaking unless unless you don't want to go first well I will go first uh if if uh uh, if that's okay. Um, apparently it is since you <laughs> asked me. Well, I, of course, have been thinking about, um, you know, the things on the news with um, Christian Cooper and uh, George Floyd and uh, the racism that is so prevalent in our society and um the situation in Central Park with uh, Christian Cooper and um, interestingly enough, um, uh, Amy Cooper, Amy Cooper. Yes. Same last name, but no relation. Um, uh, and that works on several levels. <laughs> that does. I mean, that's just, Oh, wow. But what a metaphor. I, I, that one really has my attention um, and really grateful um, for you, I mean, this morning when we were talking, because uh, we are actually friends and we talk other than uh, recording a podcast, you asked I'm gonna me- I'm going to make how- that a new rule. I'm not talking to you anymore unless yeah. it's being recorded. <laughs> we, we only talk after the record button is hit. Uh, but you asked me how I was feeling and uh, that that was really important to me. And so I, I really appreciate that um, because I've been working on- um, managing the psychology of it. I mean, there's there's just a great amount of emotional, psychological trauma um, in all of this uh, as an African-American man. And I work to manage the stress of, of this kind of, of tension. And the situation with um, Amy Cooper what was especially disturbing to me is this man was in Central Park bird watching, which not many of us um, African-American men do. And it just shows you how um, police bias is weaponized uh, by quote unquote average people. And, And this is not new. Right. It, this you can go back to um, that fourteen-year-old boy uh, Emmett Teal uh, in Mississippi, um, who was lynched. Uh, I believe he was visiting family. He was he he lived in Chicago, but he was visiting family in Mississippi. Fourteen years old, um, he was accused of offending a white woman in a grocery store, and um, they they beat him and killed him. They beat him to the point where he was barely recognized. And I, I remember many years ago, um, as a matter of fact, I was in my 20s, watching the PBS series Eyes on the Prize, and uh, they showed a picture of him um, before, uh, you know, just as a 14-year-old boy, and post-beating. And um, I, I still see those images. So um, after our conversation this morning, um, I I just sat down 
um, thinking about what I do to manage the stress and trauma uh, of this tension. And six things came to mind, and I'll just rattle them off um, real quick. Um, one of the things I do is that I watch how much I take in from the news, and, but try to stay informed. And so I really try to limit how much of this goes into my eyes and ears and, and heart because of the stress and trauma. Um, second, like I just said, I, I acknowledge that th this is not new. But sometimes I think many people get surprised, like th this kind of thing happens. No, this is not new. This is not new. Third, um, It seems to me that these kinds of periods, seasons, tensions, seem to be both a reaction to progress and precede further progress, if that makes any sense. Mm -hmm. Right, so when, at the end of World War II, African-Americans came home from the war, there was this, there, there was a period of, of flourishing. Some things were, were beginning to change. There were some changes in um, um, military laws and just, there, there's just some changes happening in the country because all of a sudden, now that we, we fought fast, fascism and uh, the Cold War was happening, there was this spotlight on this racial injustice. And so there's some things that were beginning to shift and then right after that, you see the strengthening of Jim Crow laws in the South. And then right after that, you get the civil rights movement. And so I, I get the sense that this time that we're in uh, is, one, a reaction to the Obama years, but also this precedes the next step of progress. So that, that's what's in my mind as well. Um, Fourth, um, I acknowledge, I, I just have to acknowledge that there is a price to be paid by showing up in the world with black and brown skin. There are some voices that would seduce us into thinking everything's fine. There's no longer any issues. And I have to remind myself and, and, the, and, and my child, you know, I have to remind myself that there is a price to be paid. Uh, and so that I can, I can just be aware of that, just have that in my psyche. Um, also, I've already hinted at this, is I also have to acknowledge to myself the psychological trauma and stress that like, this is stressful. This is, uh, there's, there's an existential threat that sits like an anvil in my gut. Um, and so I just have to acknowledge um, that stress because what, what times like this do in me, and I'm sure many others, is that it brings up my own history of racism, my own history of experiencing racism, my own history of 
of, of being targeted by the police walking uh, to, you know, seminary campus dressed in a button down uh, shirt and in khakis, still being stopped by the police saying, uh, I don't look like I belong in the neighborhood. Not just once, <laughs> not just twice, right? So it just brings up my own stuff and I, I need to acknowledge that. And finally, of course, in, in dealing with the, 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 the trauma and the stress of this, I always have to remind myself of the hope I have in Jesus, that ultimately, uh, you know, racism is of the devil and Jesus, uh, well, the, the scripture says light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. The, the kingdom, this mustard seed kingdom of God will advance and will take over and the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our God and of his Christ. And so um, I, I put my hope there. So that, that's what I'm thinking about in terms of managing uh, the stress of all the racial tension and injustice that we're seeing so much of on the news these days. interesting as you share what it is like living in the body of a black man. I mean, I spend a lot of time thinking always, but especially, you know, when, when we are aware of incidents like these that we know are happening all the time, but we're made aware of them in a way that we, um, you know, we cannot pretend or choose to ignore them. And I think about, you know, what does it mean that I am walking around in the body of a white woman. And, um, you know, the reality is it's not just an isolated incident in Central Park or even a throwback to one time with Emmett Till, but that if you go or do a virtual tour of the lynching museum that Brian Stevenson's group, the Equal Justice Initiative, has um, erected um, with samples of soil from all the places across this country where we know that people were lynched, i.e. murdered, but not prosecuted for murder. Um, and along with the soil, there's a placard and it, and it says um, the quote reason why people were lynched. And you find the words white woman, white woman, white woman, white woman, white woman, again and again and again, people were lynched because they were accused by a white woman or seen to be talking to a white woman, looking at a white woman, flirting with a white woman, giving a letter to a white woman. And so just the reality is just as the bodies that black and brown people walk around within this country have become symbols of danger and threat. And then the people inhabiting those bodies have to deal with that. Um, white women really need to understand that our bodies are symbols as well. And what the, that symbol plays in the cycle of the lie of redemptive violence, the idea that so many people were taught men and women that um, women's worth was tied into their purity as seen by other people and that a woman's worth and purity, you know, only lasted 
as long as that was protected. And therefore, any violence that was done in the service of protecting um, a white woman's body was inherently justified. And even if, you know, an accusation was enough to be seen as righteous violence, if such a thing exists, which to be clear, it doesn't. But, you know, people wanted to reinforce this idea that um, white women's bodies were somehow so precious um, and wanted to create great fear. Um, And so as somebody who walks around in one of those bodies that were, quote, fetishized, well, not quote, they were fetishized and, quote, protected by doing violence, you know, we just have to be aware of that and and aware as much as we, we white women might really hate to believe this about ourselves, but that this, you know, poison of white supremacy that we ideologically reject and hate. I mean, it's, it is in us. It is in all of us. And I mean, I've said this so many times before and I know on this podcast that it should not, it might be hard for a typical American citizen to believe that, but it should not be hard for a believer, follower of Jesus Christ to wrap their minds around the idea that something evil is intrinsically part of their nature. White supremacy is sin and sin is a part of all of us. And so I think, you know, as a white woman, knowing the kind of trigger that my physical body can be and how it can be weaponized and knowing that I am not immune to white supremacy and racism, no matter how much I really, really wish I were, then there are just things that I hold, try to hold myself accountable for doing. And so one is, um, I really try not to look away, even though I really, really want to. And why I think that everyone has a right to Sabbath and to protect their mental health I think that as white people, we tap out of the trauma way too quickly. And so what is good and right and discerning for my friends and loved ones who are people of color often is not for white people because after a while, this will sort of fade back into out of the collective consciousness and I will go back to having my default be pretty safe feeling. And so it just like, I just feel like it's really important for me as a white woman to hold myself accountable, to not look away and, and, um, and to read everything that there is to read and to engage. Um, and where I think it's really appropriate for people of color to say, if there's someone in their life, that's just being um, exhaustively ignorant or offensive and it's right for people of color to protect their mental energy. Um, it is right for me as a white woman to say, no, 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 (laughs) I'm going to have this conversation, um, because people might be able to hear it from me in a different way than they could from someone else. And because I don't want this to be one more thing that has to be trauma for people that I love who, who don't have a choice. Um, So I don't look away. I try to engage in constructive ways, but knowing that constructive ways will often make people mad at me. And that's, that is just has to be the price that I pay. 
So sometimes I just am aware that I have to make a choice. Do I want everyone to love me and like me? Or do I want to be a real um, agent for change? And do I want to be the kind of person who um, speaks truth in the face of injustice? And sometimes you don't get both. And so you have to choose. Um, and I, I want, you know, I want to choose um, to be prophetic and to stand up for righteousness. And the reality is, you know, most people who are bystanders aren't bystanders because they um, don't see what's going on or even because they agree with what's going on. It's because they are, um, they know that speaking up will cost them relationships and they value those relationships and they want both. And sometimes you just can't have both, especially um, as a white person, you just can't have both. And so I, I really try to hold myself accountable um, for doing that. And then um, I have some pre-decisions that I have made, some things that I have already decided um, because I know that there's a bias in me that I don't want, but that I have. Um, I have decided that no matter how certain I might think that I am about something that I will give um, people in general, but um, people of color in particular, the benefit of the doubt, because I know that my instincts and assumptions um, are just not as credible as I would want to think that they were and that I can just be certain, certain, certain that I know something and be wrong. And again, I know how my body and my word and my person has been weaponized against people. And so I've just pre-decided that like, you know, I'm just never gonna, I'm never gonna accuse someone, um, especially a person of color. Um, I'm just not gonna do it because I can't trust, there's just no, there's nothing good that can come from that. And I mean, it's interesting how often that predecision saves, I mean, saves my butt. Like just the other day, earlier, I mean, last week, I was at the church, we were doing meal distribution, and I, I am forever. Um, irresponsibly walking away and leaving my keys and wallet and phone unattended. And also I know that if something happens to those things, that's on me. Like I should take care of my things and be responsible. Well, I walked away and I left my phone down in the kitchen and my daughter Quinn was there helping me because um, we were doing the meal distribution and I had gone up into the church office to do something else. And I realized I didn't have my phone. And so I just, um, I gave her my keys and I sent her back down to the kitchen to pick up my phone and on her way, she was looking for it. And, and somebody else, um, was kind of a newer part of our community said, Oh, there are some homeless people outside. And I bet they took your mom's phone. Like your mom's phone was stolen. Right. And so Quinn came back up and she's like, I didn't know what to say. Well, blah, blah. And I was just like, it's fine. I'll go downstairs and look. I don't think anyone stole my phone. And, um, and I really didn't think anyone stole my phone. I thought I lost it, which is what I do all the time. But I'm like looking for, then there's some um, neighbors experiencing homelessness who were outside and I was talking with them. And um, one of them um, was an African-American man and he was talking to me and he's like, well, I have to, I have to go. I got to go to the phone store now. And it was so interesting, just the way sort of, the powers and principalities. And I mean, I was like, I could hear one of those little cartoon devils from, you know, from the cartoon <laughs> on my shoulder being like, he 
he did take your phone and he's going to sell it right now. And he's laughing at you and you know, and you should just ask them, like you should just ask them if they've seen a phone. And, and I had decided I was not going to do that because if you walk up to two people, especially two people experiencing homelessness, especially if you're a white woman talking to people who are people of color, who you don't know, and you say, have you seen my phone? That is an accusation. It just is. And I don't, I mean, the risks of falsely accusing an innocent person far outweigh the benefits of, I, I mean, if someone has taken my phone, they're not going to give it back to you because you asked for it, right? I mean, it's just stupid. And so I didn't do it, but I was so uncomfortable. And then of course, like I came back up to the office, you know, totally certain that I, my phone was gone and I would never see it again. And then it turned out, you know, I, it was like, I had it with me the whole time. Right. And I just realized like, were it not for that pre-decision that I made years ago, that I would never do that no matter what I would have said something to those men and broken trust and relationships and wounded them by an accusation that would have been false and for nothing, you know? And so I think like having just an awareness of how the systems work and awareness of the choice that I'm trying to make about to best of my abilities, what role I want to play, knowing that it will cost me something and I am willing to pay that cost. I mean, it, it really helps me because in the moment in a tense situation, your fears and your feelings will lead you down the wrong path. And so, I mean, then I think, you know, just, um, I know that if I want to continue to engage both in being part of a multi-ethnic community and in trying to be, um, an ally, trying to speak up and in, you know, whatever, to, to bang a drum for justice. I mean, to use the prophetic language, which you know, makes you feel like a damn fool when you try to talk about that sincerely, right? You just seem like such an egomaniac idiot who talks like that. But if you want to do that work, um, as a white person, I know that even though I don't want to, I know I'm going to get it wrong sometimes. And I know I'm going to say or do something that will um, hurt or traumatize offend, if you want to use that language, although it seems dismissive to use that language, a person that I'm trying to stand in solidarity with. And, and I know that, you know, people will call me out on that. Um, and I know that my instinct, my, what I will want to do with every fiber in my being is to like defend myself and say, well, this is what I meant. And well, you don't know me. And this isn't my, and I just <laughs> have pre-decided that if, when that happens, I just need to say, I'm sorry. And thank you for telling me. And I'll try to, and let it, I mean, and not let it go because I will want to process and think and work through it, but I want to be really intentional about where I do that work. Um, and, but also just to know that, you know, the only way to never do something wrong is just to never get involved. Mm. Um, and I don't, I don't want to never be involved. Like if I want to risk doing something right, then I have to risk doing something wrong and being wrong is not a sin or a crime. 
if you have a willingness to accept that about yourself in humility and repent and turn and walk another way. And in the world, to admit that you were wrong and repent and turn around is just a totally shameful, shameful thing. But in the kingdom of God, in the context of the gospel, that is not a mark of weakness. That is a mark of strength. And so I don't, I also need to know that not everyone has to see it that way, that people can just think, I mean, sometimes rightly that I can discern that I'm, my ego is in the way or I'm performative or what, I mean, but that ultimately if I'm grounded in the cross, if the most important thing to me is that I have been accepted by God, then I can both care about people and want to love and be loved by people and also just accept that, um, you know, some people will be mad at me and that's okay. And some people won't understand me and that's okay. And some people won't accept me and that's okay. And certainly no person of color is ever needs to throw me a ticker tape parade just for trying to stand up and be a decent human being. Right. And just how deeply uncomfortable it is to want to be awake um, and engaged for the long term and recognize that, you know, the deeper you go in, the higher the stakes and the more likely you are to like screw up and to be willing to still walk in further um, is an act of self-giving love. And that seems to me to be the way that the cross is leading us to go. So, um, and also just, you know, I don't, I mean, I wish I did, but, you know, I have just grown up knowing that there was a certain burden to being a person of color in this country. And so why the hell do I think there shouldn't be a certain burden that comes along with being a white person in this country? And to see sort of that white consciousness really sometimes for the first time in the last decade or so began to sort of grapple with the reality of that and just be so angry. Like, why should I have to feel bad all the time? I don't know. Why should other people have to feel unsafe all the time? I mean, it just, until we create a culture based on better values, these systems are killing everyone. Mm -hmm. um, so that is just really important. Like this is the actual world we live in. And I don't believe that the spirit of God flows in make belief land. So we got to live in the real world if we want to be a part of the real abundant life that Jesus is bringing us. Wow. Let the church say amen if the ushers will come. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. What are you, what are you preaching about? What am I preaching about this week? Well, it's Pentecost Sunday, and so um, we will go to Acts chapter 2 um, and be filled with the Spirit. And um, I haven't uh, outlined the message yet, but you know, every year, Pentecost Sunday is one of my favorite uh, days of the year. I, I feel like it's often uh, neglected in light of both Christmas and Easter, um, I was asked last week, you know, why I did not, uh, lift up Memorial Day, uh, and, and, uh, uh, emphasize that in worship. Mm -mm -mm. And, and my response was that, um, 
most, if not all the people in our community knew it was Memorial Weekend. But if I asked people, what's next Sunday? I don't know if anyone would say. Next Sunday is Pentecost. And so as a minister of the gospel, I just feel like it's my job to to highlight that um, as, as a discipler, as someone who is leading people um, into an ever deepening relationship with Jesus, that it is my, not just my job, but my, um, my privilege to say, hey, this is what is important. Well, and let me just uh, Memorial Day has its place. I'm, listen, I got lots of people in my family who have been in the military. Um, uh, I've got many veterans. I'm married to one. Yeah. And even the veteran that I am married to says, listen, when it comes to church, I want it to be about Jesus. I want well, it to I, be about Jesus. And so I would just say, I mean, first of all, that is a civic holiday and we are in the church. So, I mean, I'm, I'm done with that. But I mean, nobody, nobody wants to hear me preach about Memorial Day. Like, like I promise you. I kind of do now. (laughs) But I will say this for anybody who's interesting. There's a guy I like a lot named Brian Zand, who's a pastor. And I like a lot of his stuff. And you can follow him on social media, Z-H-A-N-D. He's he's getting a little interesting during quarantine, (laughs) posting a lot of like his favorite um, movies and, um, and, uh, CDs, but you can ignore all that. But, um, he had this really interesting post from one of his books about Memorial Day, which is talking about, you know, on the surface of it, we think like, oh, isn't this great? We want to honor the sacrifice that people have made. And, and yes, I mean, I want to honor the tragedy of young lives that have been cut off. Right. I I do want to honor that. And, but he was also just saying like, what people don't understand is that in this civic religion of redemptive violence, every time we show up to honor the sacrifice, we're setting the stage for the next round of sacrifices. Right. So that every time we gather in these um, graveyards, if what we say is they gave their lives for freedom. And so we're here to honor them. Then what we're doing is just setting the scene so that when the time comes, uh, the next round of young people can be told, now it's your turn to lay down your life for freedom. And he says, which is, this is exactly right. It is, I mean, it is a pagan God of war, Mars, right? Who demands cycles of blood sacrifice, right? I mean, like this stuff is heavy. And the gospel of Jesus Christ, we would definitely honor the goodness of the lives that were lost and mourn the tragedy that they were lost, but we honor and mourn in the context of saying that we were not created to go to war with one another. And there's no such thing as a good war. And that Jesus Christ died on the cross to reveal that violence is never, ever, ever redemptive. And we're working for a different kind of world. And if to the extent that we get the cross brought in to prop up the flag to say that America must be protected at all costs, even with the blood of our sons and daughters. Like, I'm just saying, no one wants to hear me preach on Memorial Day. I want to honor the pain 
of people whose lives and families have been destroyed and people who have been, have had things taken from them that should never have been taken. But I mean, I just, it is this very seductive um, myth making we're participating in when we do that work. And people want to say like, well, if you don't honor Memorial Day, then that means you're dishonoring the people who have died. And that is not true. Um, so that's all I have to say about that. Wow. It's not well, even I, on my list of things to talk about. I, I'm assuming that you are preaching uh, Pentecost this Sunday. Yes, I am preaching Pentecost this Sunday. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'm preaching about Lance Armstrong, the dry bones, <laughs> and the new spirit and resurrection of Pentecost. I mean, that's all. That's my teaser. That's what I'm. I'm doing. Wow. I'm doing the Valley of Dry Bones. That's a good Pentecost text. Absolutely. I mean, and you can see all the places where I'm going. But I mean, basically, always, but especially this week. I mean, it is just one more um, sign in our faces that you know that our brothers and sisters are being murdered and. You know, it's not just the death of George Floyd. It's that, you know, the people who killed him and the people who, not the people who protested, but the people who watched him being killed. I mean, those people are, I mean, it, are already dead. I mean, like the spirit is, I mean, that's the issue, right? And that the spirit of Jesus is no matter how much we try to claim that we're a Christian nation, I mean, the spirit of Jesus is not unleashed in our communities because if it were, these things couldn't be happening. And, you know, just part of the many part things that I've been reading this week is just, you know, an accounting and a reckoning, especially for white people who, who are sincerely outraged by what happened, but also recognizing that like police officers work for us i.e. from the very beginning, the police um, forces were were founded to bring back escaped slaves, right? I mean, so police have always existed to protect infrastructure and wealth that belonged historically to white people. And so, I mean, if we wanted a police force that did not profile black and brown bodies, we'd have it. I mean, we would. And I was reading this one thing this week that said, you know, I mean, the Republican Party, which I think is fair to talk about because they're in power right now, not that it's, it is clearly not a Republican Party solely, party problem solely because Amy Cooper is a Democrat. But, you know, the Republican Party has busted the labor unions, the teachers unions, every other kind of union it is. And then when things like this happen, we all go, well, there's nothing we can do, the police union. No, no, no. Like, if we wanted to change the system, we would. And the people who are being brutalized and killed by the system want to change it. But a whole lot of us who are not really threatened by it are not really disturbed by it either. And that's why I think, I'm just going to go ahead and say, in case anyone is still listening to us, I mean, it makes me mad to hear people talk about being offended by the looting, A, because many of those people are not offended by the murder, or at least we'll say, I was offended by the murder. No, you weren't, because you never talked about it until the looting started. But the reality is, I think on some level, people know that the powers that be care about a looted target 
more than they will ever, ever care about the death of George Floyd. So I'm not sure if it's intended to be strategic, but A, I'm not mad. I don't expect people of color to the extent that all the looters were people of color. And I don't know that to be true, but I don't expect people to respect property rights when law enforcement won't respect their right to be alive. And if we do expect that of people, that's just ridiculous. You can't on the one hand say, well, it's just, it's just dumb. And I, um, I just think that when white people's economic interests are threatened, that is when systemic change starts to come. And I feel like I know this for many reasons, including the Montgomery bus boycotts. And that's everything that the civil rights movement taught us is that people don't care. And especially who doesn't care, white moderates don't care. People start to care when they are personally affected by systemic injustice. Um, And we just can't wait for all families to become biracial. (laughs) So I think a lot of white people start caring when they marry, you know, when their spouse is a person of color or when they have biracial children or when they adopt um, transracially. And that's great. I'm glad that people care then, but we have to care before it's our actual loved ones with um, the, the police knee on their necks. Yeah, when it comes to looters, you know, one of the things I'm aware of is that, you know, I have a certain level of privilege um, where and how I grew up, um, places of education that have given me some tools to deal with the trauma. And many people do not have that same privilege. And so when your trauma hits a certain point, um, you act out. And we would have compassion on uh, a kid who went through some terrible abuse and then, you know, uh, as a child and then as a teenager, you know, started to act out it in, in, in ways that were unhealthy. We would say, well, they're doing this because of this trauma, so let's help them get some healing. It's, it's the same kind of situation, but it's, it's collective, collective trauma. And I mean, the acting out is, it is destructive. It's not helpful, but see it for what it is. It is, um, it is a, 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 an overflow of the stress and trauma of the reality that people clearly see. And this is, I mean, this is is all the time. This is not a unique observation for me, but I mean, so many people, you know, you have a no knock warrant in Louisville and Breonna Taylor is dead and people go, well, but it's just the stress and the pressure and it was a mistake. And that just, I mean, things got destroyed and a person got killed, but I mean, you understand just, it happens that way sometimes. So we're so quick to excuse that kind of destruction from our law enforcement officials. And yet, we are just offended and outraged when people who have been completely disenfranchised and oppressed by the systems get to their stress, rage, breaking point, and then we just think, "Oh, well, how could they?" I mean, it's just insane. Um, and I, you know, I, I really like the term caucasity, which is um, also I did not make that up. Um, Lovey Ajay who writes a blog called Awesomely Lovey. I think she coined it and it is a mashup of the words Caucasian on audacity. And it is just funny to see people and it's always white people. I mean, 
anyone can de decry the destruction of a neighborhood, but we need to put um, the impetus of that where it started. And we need to hold the people with more power, more resources, more authority and, you know, weapons more, I mean, to a higher standard than ordinary citizens. We just, you know, we just do. And, and we so quickly don't because. Well, and there is a, a form of, of Christianity that focuses so much on the individual. It's about me and, um, my getting to heaven and it fails to remind people of the words of Jesus to love, to care about neighbor. And so because there is a form of Christianity, Christianity that says it's all about me, we have a hard time in this country seeing events like we're seeing through the eyes of loving neighbor. Mm -hmm. So it seems to me that if we were walking in the way of Jesus, as an African-American, I should be able to say to a white Christian, a white Christian, the Confederate, flying the Confederate flag is harmful. It is painful to me, your Christian mm -hmm. brother. It, it, and so I need you to hear that. But because uh, so many have been taught in their church, it is about them that they just can't hear that. And so this whole need to love and to, um, and to suffer because we love one another. Right. And to limit our freedoms. Yes. That that's a hard message in these days. And, and, and what you'll get in return is an accusation. Well, you're the racist, right? Mm -hmm. That, that, that's, that's the wall that's up. And it, it's, it's a really, it's a, I think a dangerous form of the faith um, that prevents well, people from, uh, from hearing, from seeing their neighbor. Well, and from walking in the way of Jesus, because the reality is we let our understanding of what love is be shaped by Hallmark movies and music videos. And so we think that, oh, love is when you just feel good and happy all the time, which I mean, I don't know what gospel you're reading, but like you, that's not what the love of Jesus is. And so when we start letting like, okay, if, if the model to be human is Jesus, and if we let Jesus's experience become kind of a template for, for who we are trying to be and become and sort of say like, well, anything that Jesus experienced is kind of within the bounds for me to experience it too. And so then to say, well, did Jesus ever have to give anything up in order to love us? Uh, I don't know <laughs> everything from the very beginning to the very end and limit his freedoms and be misunderstood. And I mean, yes, a thousand times. Yes. And that, you know, love isn't only about suffering. I mean, it was a suffering that was redemptive. So it's not just, well, if you love someone, you should let them beat the hell out of you forever because they want to, right. that's not what it's about. But to say, you know, I don't, uh, for the sake of the well being of my loved one, I'm going to forego this freedom or I'm going to endure this hardship. That is, I mean, that's called picking up your cross and following Jesus. And so to say, well, for the love of my spouse, I'm going to let them beat me doesn't fly because your spouse beating you is not loving to you or to them. Right. <laughs> but to say for the love of my brother in Christ, I'm going to stop, you know, wearing a shirt with a symbol on it, or I'm going to stop 
putting black makeup on my face or I'm like, I, you don't even need to explain to me. Even if I don't understand, it doesn't matter if I understand you're standing in front of me telling me this causes me deep trauma, hurt and pain. And when you wear it, you are showing me that you don't respect me. I should, any Christian should just be able to say like, okay, enough said. All things are permissible, but not all things are beneficial. Like that, those who are strong should bear with those who are weak. It's just, but when our version of love is based on a rom-com and not on the gospel, then we think, well, this isn't love because it doesn't make me feel good. And it doesn't make me feel special. And it makes me feel bad instead of chosen. And, And so, you know, we just do not... Well, my friend Bill Lamar wrote a great article about like, we need to understand what is the theology behind all of these systems. Like it is a misunderstanding of who God is and who Jesus is that allows us to participate in all of these systems and prop them up. And I'm not talking about, again, I'm not talking about revolution on the street. I'm not talking about everybody going down and looting their neighborhood targets. I'm talking about when we go into a voting booth, we would think about voting not for our own selfish, narrow, short-term best interest, but for the sake of our neighbor who is vulnerable. I mean, if we wanted a different system, we would have it. I mean, if we all called the city of Charlotte today and said, you know, we want you to pass a law that says that officers have to intervene if they see another officer um, brutalizing a suspect, we'd have that law. They work for us. Like, it's like when my kids are misbehaving, I can't be mad at them. I have to take responsibility that I am the one who has taught them that this kind of behavior is acceptable. Wow. I mean, there's some personal responsibility for my Republican brothers and sisters. (laughs) Anyway, well, I think I've been as offensively radical as I offensively self-righteously radical as I care to be for one day. (laughs) (laughs) And, and my phone is dying and the zoom has kicked us off three times already. So I know, I hope we have all the audio. I did too, but I'm sure we will. Well, um, if you're still listening, we are grateful. (laughs) If you want to, um, check out Yolanda's messages, which are now video, you can go and search for the derided church on YouTube. You can search for their podcast on the Mimbeam, um, website you can search Podbean. for Podbean. Thank you. Mimbean is a elementary reading. <laughs> I'm just I'm so ready for the end of the school year. Um Podbean website, <laughs> Derida Church Podcast. And you can Google Derida Church in Charlotte, North Carolina, um Derida Presbyterian Church and pop over to their website. And if you would like to hear messages from the Grove, if you want to know what Lance Armstrong has to do with Pentecost. Hmm. Hope that I can make that turn. Um, you can um, live stream our service um, on our Facebook page, The Grove Church. Um, TheGroveCharlotte.org is our website. Um, and you can listen to our um, sermons on our iTunes account, The Grove Charlotte on iTunes. And we are grateful um, to all of y'all for listening in on our conversation. And we will talk to you next week. 